Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series all about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be finishing up our three-part mini-series all about the Confederacy. In today's final episode, we're going to take a look at what the ideologies and mindset and kind of twisted historical value has led to what, you know, it's remembered as today. What is truly the legacy that the Confederacy has left behind and how does it look today? We're going to begin by talking about what the Confederacy birthed, starting with the KKK. The Confederacy was responsible for birthing several movements that are all harmful and terrible. And while you may not realize it, the Confederacy and its ideals were responsible for the KKK, Jim Crow, inspiring Nazism to a degree, and of course, modern white nationalism. We're going to start with the Ku Klux Klan because it was directly started as a result of the loss of the Civil War. Now I have done an MLM episode about the KKK to discuss how they were actually secretly kind of an MLM of sorts that got its members to sign up under one another and pay membership dues and robes and stuff. It was kind of weird. But today we're going to talk about how the Confederacy directly inspired and created the KKK as an organization. National Geographic describes the KKK this way. Late in 1865, just after the United States Civil War ended, the Ku Klux Klan was founded. The Klan, a secret organization that used terror tactics to target newly freed African-Americans, attracted defeated Confederates who resented the changes of reconstruction. Under the cloak of darkness and in disguise, the KKK worked to enforce white supremacy as the political and social order of the South. They go on to explain that newly freed black people tried to exercise their rights to freedom and were often intimidated and harmed by the KKK. They were known to regularly lynch black people to send a message to the others that might try to exercise their rights that if you try, this will happen to you too. The early KKK was disbanded due to a number of reasons, but it was partially due to the president's use of martial law. Unfortunately, it rose up again in 1915 and can still be found throughout the country today, much to many people's dismay. Now, the KKK was a difficult force to stop because they were white people from all different walks of life, including people within the government involved in it, it was difficult for the government to really do anything about it because they were often aware of the government's plans before they even enacted them. One article gives us an overview of their actions saying, and I quote, as blacks were being freed and the country began extending civil rights, including voting rights, Klan groups called claverns formed around the South to keep blacks subordinate. The group capitalized on the Southern tradition of night riders who intimidated slaves to control them. From 1866 to 1871, men calling themselves Ku Klux killed hundreds of black Southerners and their white supporters, sexually molested hundreds of black women and men, drove thousands of black families from their homes and thousands of black men and women from their employment, and appropriated land, crops, guns, livestock, and food from black Southerners on a massive scale. I'm sure some people would like to paint the picture that the KKK was a small group that largely didn't represent the interests of the vast majority of Americans or even Southerners. But it's important to note that at its prime, the KKK had around 4 million members. It's not a tiny group of people. Another article goes on to explain that by 1870, the Ku Klux Klan had branches in nearly every Southern state. 
Even at its height, the clan did not boast a well-organized structure or clear leadership. Local clan members, often wearing masks and dressed in the organization's signature long white robes and hoods, usually carried out their attacks at night, acting on their own, but in support of the common goals of defeating racial reconstruction and restoring white supremacy in the South. And this isn't just some harrowing part of our past that we can look back on and say, well, at least it's over now and we're sorry to the people that were affected by it. It's something that's still very alive and well today. Perhaps the KKK isn't as strong as it once was. However, there are people that think very much like the KKK who simply don't belong to the organization or belong to another organization that has a similar mindset. Now, today there are a few members of the Klan left and the estimates are somewhere between five to 8,000 members that exist in the US, which is a small fraction of what there was at its prime. That being said, we can't account for people who are going to be closeted about it. And there are other hate groups that have kind of joined in such as the neo-Nazis that kind of blur the lines between who's who. While the exact group of the Klan is small, there are a myriad of other hate groups that have taken up their place. And all of these hate groups are fueled by politicians and leaders that spread hate. I also think what's particularly disturbing is the way they saw a rise in active membership over the last few years due to an increase in hateful rhetoric, white supremacist dog whistles, and openly racist politicians and celebrities. And around 22 states have active chapters of the KKK in their midst. But the racist and violent ideologies that the Confederate birthed aren't limited to just the KKK. They extend further into the country's history at the time of Jim Crow. The Confederacy's ideology, its white supremacy, did everything it could to make sure that black people were not equal to white people. So when slavery was no longer an option, they looked at incarcerating black Americans and punishing them in other cruel ways justified by their ideas that black people were still inferior to them. Jim Crow was yet another direct result of the ideologies that the Confederates believed in. So what exactly is Jim Crow and the Jim Crow laws? The segregation and disenfranchisement laws known as Jim Crow represented a formal codified system of racial apartheid that dominated the American South for three quarters of a century beginning in the 1890s. The laws affected almost every aspect of daily life, mandating segregation of schools, parks, libraries, drinking fountains, restrooms, buses, trains, and restaurants. Whites only and colored signs were constant reminders of the enforced racial order. So do you remember a while back in a previous episode when I mentioned that the vice president of the Confederacy believed that God made black people inferior based on a curse that was given in a biblical reference? Listen to this explanation of Jim Crow. Jim Crow was the name of the racist caste system which operated primarily but not exclusively in Southern and border states between 1877 and the mid 1960s. Jim Crow was more than a series of rigid anti-black laws. It was a way of life. Under Jim Crow, African-Americans were relegated to the status of second-class citizens. Jim Crow represented the legitimization of anti-Black racism. Many Christian ministers and theologians taught that whites were the chosen people, Blacks were cursed to be servants, and God supported racial segregation. Craniologists, eugenicists, phrenologists, and social Darwinists at the very educational level buttressed the belief that Blacks were innately, intellectually, and culturally inferior to whites. Pro-segregation politicians gave eloquent speeches on the great danger of integration, the mongrelization of the white race. Newspaper and magazine writers routinely referred to blacks as the N-word, C-word, and darkies. And worse, their articles reinforced anti-black stereotypes. Even children's games portrayed black people as inferior beings. 
All major societal institutions reflected and supported the oppression. The same beliefs that Alexander Stevens spoke about in his speech about how he believed that black people were inferior were implicit to the ideas behind Jim Crow. Right after the Civil War, it seemed like black people might truly be free and they began to live their lives just as any white person would. But it wouldn't be too long before white people caught wind of this and started pressuring lawmakers to stop black people from having all of these liberties. They did everything they could to put them in their perceived place. In a landmark case, Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court upheld that segregation was lawful as long as black people were given separate but equal spaces. And of course, that didn't really work out. And then laws designed to justify racism started rolling in one after another. One article explains, two years later, the court seemed to seal the fate of black Americans when it upheld a Mississippi law designed to deny black men to vote. Given the green light, Southern states began to limit the voting right to those who owned property or could read well, to those whose grandfathers had been able to vote, to those with good characters, to those who paid poll taxes. In 1896, Louisiana had 130,334 registered black voters. Eight years later, only 1,342, 1% could pass the state's new rules. As you can see, black people were often denied the ability to vote. And when they did have the ability to vote, they were presented with poll taxes or other infringements to prevent them from voting. But the laws themselves weren't the only discrimination that black people suffered. Social constructs were created that were intended to humiliate and harm black people on every level of society. For example, black people weren't able to work the same jobs that white people were. Black people couldn't live on any of the same streets that white people could. To give you an idea of what Jim Crow was like, here are some of the things that were seen in this time frame. Black men couldn't shake a white man's hand because it would risk looking like they were equals. And furthermore, if he were to extend his hand to a white woman, he would be accused of rape. Black people and white people rarely ever ate together. And if they did, a partition was placed between them. Black people were not allowed to show public affection. Not all that unlike laws and social constructs that prevented gay people from showing affection to one another not that long ago. It was offensive to the white man, just as gay love and affection was offensive to straight people. A black man could never imply that a white man was lying or less intelligent than him. And these are just a few of the social constructs and ideas that were observed. And there were many, many more. This is not a conclusive list by any means. These are just some examples. And make no mistake, these laws were a direct result of the Confederacy's loss and deep racism and belief in white supremacy and really just not being able to let that shit go. And while new amendments to the constitution were ratified to ensure that black people could be citizens and granted black men the right to vote, the black codes were often still enforced in Southern states and the president was loath to do something about it. And to make matters worse, although the 13th amendment technically abolished slavery, it provided an exception that allowed for the continuation of the practice of forced labor as punishment for a crime. In the decades after the Civil War, black incarceration rates grew 10 times faster than that of the general population as a result of programs such as convict leasing, which sought to replace slave labor with equally cheap and disposable convict labor. Although convict leasing was abolished, it helped to lay the foundations for wave after wave of laws and public policy that encouraged the jailing of African-Americans at astronomical rates. If you want to understand the damage that was done by the 13th Amendment's clause about forced labor, you should absolutely watch the documentary called 13th, 
I've watched it and it was extremely eye-opening about how even though slavery was supposed to be abolished, it was just being enforced in another new way. And again, I understand I'm probably leaving a lot out. I'm doing a lot of summarizing here to try and make a very simple timeline to follow, but there was a lot of messed up shit that was essentially going on and new laws that were just being created to essentially reinforce stereotypes over and over and over. But next we're going to talk about how Jim Crow wasn't the last thing inspired by the Confederacy's ideology. Nazism was directly inspired by the Confederacy's racism and white supremacy and the subsequent Jim Crow laws. So let's dig into that, unfortunately. Now, eugenics was something that was kind of a popular theory at the time of all of this happening, like late 1800s, early 1900s. So to make it clear, I know when we think of Nazism, we explicitly look at Germany and we obviously are going to look at how Hitler took inspiration from what was happening in America, which is very interesting. But something to note is that eugenics and the theory of it and the study of it and the fascination and interest was not something exclusive to Germany. This was something that like all of Europe and the Americas, like anywhere that was looking into like how humans do what we do and looking into science stuff like that, they were all pretty much exploring eugenics. This was a pretty universal thing to look at. So it's probably not gonna help super much, but I feel that it's always important to place that in there that this was not a unique studied like feature just to Germany. So. Hitler was consumed with the idea that interracial marriages were reprehensible and that segregating different races was a logistical way to deal with corruption of the white race. Remember what we said earlier about how so many in America were concerned with what they called mongrelization of the white race? Well, that's that's kind of like his sentiment, really. I recently read a book called Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of the Nazi Race Law. The book was incredibly insightful about how Hitler's early ideas about how to transform Germany actually came from some laws in America that inspired him. Both Jim Crow laws and anti-miscegenation laws were drawn from the early days when the Nuremberg laws were passed, as history explains. In 1935, Nazi Germany passed two radically discriminatory pieces of legislation, the Reich Citizenship Law and the Law for the Protection of German Blood and German Honor. Together, these were known as the Nuremberg Laws, and they laid the legal groundwork for the persecution of Jewish people during the Holocaust and World War II. In Hitler's American model, James Q. Whitman says, one of the most striking Nazi views was that Jim Crow was a suitable racist program in the United States because American blacks were already oppressed and poor, he says. But then in Germany, by contrast, where the Jews, as the Nazis imagined it, were rich and powerful. It was necessary to take more severe measures. So what extreme measures did the Nazis base their actions on? They based the citizenship component of the Nuremberg Laws on the United States decision to allow Native Americans and other groups to live on the land, but not be citizens. They used this idea to strip Jewish people of their citizenship rather than calling them nationals as opposed to citizens. But while they didn't draw their citizenship laws from Jim Crow, they did draw their anti-Miskegonation laws from Jim Crow. They decided that anyone Jewish should not marry anyone white and look to America again to determine what makes someone Jewish. Again, as history steps in and explains, controversial one-drop rules stipulated that anyone with any black ancestry was legally black and could not marry a white person. Laws also defined what made a person Asian or Native American in order to prevent these groups from marrying whites. Notably, Virginia had a Pocahontas exception for prominent white families. The Nuremberg Laws too came up with a system of determining who belonged to what group, allowing the Nazis to criminalize marriage and sex between Jewish and Aryan people. Rather than adopting a one-drop rule, the Nazis decreed that a Jewish person was anyone who had three or more Jewish grandparents. 
Time Magazine explains the climate in the US saying, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, America led the world in race-based lawmaking as a broad political consensus favoring safeguarding and historically white character of the country. That is, it codified white nationalism. Congress passed immigration legislation designed to guarantee the predominance of immigrants from Northern Europe, largely shutting the doors on Jews, Italians, Asians, and others. As Nazi commentators approvingly put it, if this was law, it was intended to keep out undesirables. So how did this apply to Nazi Germany? In Mein Kampf, Hitler explicitly states that America was the only nation making great progress on creating the type of nation he desired. He praised America in killing Native Americans and taking their land. Specifically, Hitler praised the way the Aryan America conquered its own continent by clearing the soil of natives to make room for more racially pure settlers and lay the foundation for its economic self-sufficiency and growing global power. But more importantly, he saw America as a cautionary tale. He believed that so-called race mixing would make America less great over time. And he used this cautionary tale to justify what he did to the Jewish people. So to underscore the importance of all of this, early Nazi Germany wasn't about the final solution or torture of Jewish people. It all started with race-based hatred and discriminatory laws. It was the first step of many that led to the Holocaust. And it was based on the idea that American race-based politics was the answer. And the sad thing is the US climate after the civil war was a place where Nazi sympathizers were able to take hold, form groups and share those ideologies. While many Southerners didn't agree with Hitler, they were some who certainly shared his viewpoints. And in fact, today there are many Nazi sympathizers within the US who still stand behind these genocidal views. And of course, there are some Nazi sympathizers that still live in Germany, have ties to the American Confederate self too. In Germany, the swastika is illegal. There's no place in Germany where the Nazi flag is allowed to fly. As a result, people in Germany that still believe in Hitler's ideology had to find another way to show their hatred and contempt. And apparently they do this by flying Confederate flags, which are not banned in Germany. So even there, the Confederate flag is a symbol for racism and hatred. And sure, you might think, okay, that's not that bad, even though I personally can't wrap my head around thinking like that, but The ideas that Hitler took from America were just laws that prohibited marriage and citizenship. However, these were the foundation for much greater injustices. History News Network explains, Hitler studied American eugenic laws. He tried to legitimize his anti-Semitism by medicalizing it and wrapping it in a more palatable pseudoscientific facade of eugenics. Hitler was able to recruit more followers among reasonable Germans by claiming that science was on his side. While Hitler's race hatred sprung from his own mind, the intellectual outlines of the eugenics Hitler adopted in 1924 were made in America. And I wish I could say that this is kind of the last of what the Confederacy inspired, but unfortunately, the Confederacy's legacy still lives on amongst the many hate groups and modern white nationalism throughout the country today. As most of you are no doubt aware, modern white nationalism is at a high in the United States right now, inflamed by many celebrities, internet personalities, and politicians. The insurrection that happened in January showed just how much tension and conflict there is in the US right now. And as you've probably gathered from the rest of these episodes about the Confederacy, they're also directly responsible for a lot of this continued modern white nationalism that still persists. American Progress explains, The United States is living through a moment of profound and positive change in attitudes towards race, with a large majority of citizens coming to grips with the deeply embedded historical legacy of racist structures and ideas. The recent protests and public reaction to George Floyd's murder are a testament to many individuals' deep commitment to renewing the founding ideals of the Republic. 
But there is another more dangerous side to this debate, one that seeks to rehabilitate toxic political notions of racial superiority, stoke fears of immigrants and minorities to inflame grievances for political ends, and attempt to build a notion of an embattled white majority, which has to defend its power. So while many people are starting to face what racism has done to people in the United States, still others are clinging on to the old ideas from the past and continue to push harmful ideology that results in shootings and murders. I wish they were just isolated incidents, but the reality is white nationalism is here and it's on the rise. Facing history puts it this way. White nationalism is a dangerous ideology that has seen an exponential rise in prevalence across the United States since 2017. The threat of white nationalism gained new attention after the insurrection on January 6, 2021, where many members of the mob attacking the US Capitol displayed white nationalist symbols and slogans. Other recent attacks motivated by white nationalist ideology include the shootings in a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, the mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, the Tree of Light Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. White nationalist violence is not a new phenomenon, even if it is taking on new forms. In the United States, the 1979 Greensboro shootings, various attacks committed in the 1980s by The Order, and the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing were all motivated by the white nationalist ideology. Increasingly, white nationalists are targeting young people for recruitment online, and white nationalism has been linked to bullying, threats, and violence in schools. For these reasons, it is critical that we all understand what white nationalism is and why it is harmful. So why is it making a resurgence and why is it so prevalent now? The ability to connect on all platforms, the indoctrination of young minds in a place that is hard for parents to keep out of their homes, the internet. Think about it. Have you ever just let YouTube do its thing and maybe you're researching something because I often have to research some not so pleasant topics and then all of a sudden you stumble across a video that's just spouting off white supremacy, dog whistles, far right leaning ideology, and even racism? I know I have, and it's a little spooky to find it. The difference is, while you and I might walk away from the YouTube video in shock and disbelief that people can do and say such things so openly, young impressionable minds and people that are longing for some kind of revolution or something to believe in will stumble across these videos and find this community and kind of go with it. Where once a really racist person could just be dismissed in the past, uh, now they're open, they're seeking friendship, and they're looking for like-minded visuals on the internet and forming alliances and groups. And it's done pretty open and out in the public. The New York Times explains, for the past 40 years, there have been dueling narratives about white supremacists in the US, dangerous or farcical. They are alternately seen as hillbilly fringe with outsized ambitions for political revolution and a savvy movement demanding constant vigilance. While the media, nonprofits, and law enforcement have juggled these two ideas, White power organizers have been busy connecting, recruiting, and working at the digital grindstone, speaking to and expanding their base for decades. Pushing the idea that white supremacy doesn't exist in our society only ignores that it's real and it's really damaging. We need to shine a light on it and not just dismiss it as a farce. The New York Times goes on and explains, social media reached near ubiquity. On platforms like Twitter and Facebook, extremists could organize and share information, often in plain sight. Instead of thousands of people reading online bulletin boards, tens of millions were seeing racist Pepe the Frog memes, white genocide rhetoric, and conspiracy theories about Democrats running child trafficking rings. But far too often, we dismiss the acts of violence as the act of one person, and we forget all the things that led up to their decision. The power of the movement behind those people. Does this sound familiar? It sounds like most white nationalists of today believe in the same ideas that Confederates and post-Reconstructionists believed in. And that is that while white people are somehow superior to all races, 
that immigration of non-white people and interracial marriages present a threat to the white race. And of course, although this isn't ubiquitous, there is a current anti-Semitism wave in the modern day white nationalist movement. Jews are common scapegoats for the perceived cultural and political grievances of white nationalists. White nationalists and anti-Semitic literature and conferences have also frequent author and speaker overlap. And this leads me obviously to the insurrection that occurred on January 6th. It was never more clear when we saw the insurrection just how many people believed and felt deeply convicted by racist ideology and white nationalism. To see that many people show up believing they could just take over the government in the name of white supremacy was astonishing. And you might be thinking, Blair, you've lost the plot. We're talking about the Confederacy. What does this have to do with anything? Well, the fact is during the insurrection, Confederate flags were on full display as a sort of call to arms. Furthermore, there were references to Auschwitz and other terrible displays. People want to believe that the Confederate flag is nothing more than a symbol of heritage, a memorial to the people who died fighting for their beliefs. But you have to remember what those beliefs were exactly. They were founded on the ideals of slavery through and through. As we discussed, the Confederacy was inextricably linked to slavery and the premise that white people were superior. For someone to carry the Confederate flag during an insurrection, it means that they too follow the ideas held by the Confederacy and then the white nationalist post-reconstructionists. AP News states, Confederate flags and white supremacist symbols were also present at the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville that turned deadly after a car mowed into counter-protesters. The rally, which left one counter-protester dead, brought several neo-Nazi, white supremacist, and related groups together, much like the Capitol insurrection, Brooks said. This merging of groups you see in Charlottesville and that you saw at the Capitol last week doesn't usually happen, she said, but they're desperate. They are convinced that they're this grave minority that is being threatened and needs to stick together and rally under this moniker of hatred. They also note that the insurrectionists hold on to the idea that Donald Trump actually won the presidency similar to that of the lost cause doctrine and that's become their own new lost cause. So you might begin to wonder, as I most certainly did, with all of this hatred and racism re-emerging and the things inspired by the Confederacy, what do we do? Well, before we dig into that, I most certainly need a quick moment to cleanse my mind and cleanse my thoughts because this was very heavy, very quick. So I'm gonna place the ad sponsor right here because Lord knows this video, not monetized hell. This entire series, probably not monetized. So I wanna thank today's sponsors for allowing me to research this and be able to present this information. It was a very long, tedious, painful, shocking process. So here's the sponsor and then we're going to continue on. You've got back-to-back meetings, errands to run and chores to take care of. So what's the secret to clearing your to-do list? Well, maybe it's a little help from DoorDash. You can get dinner, household essentials and everything on your grocery list delivered. Get what you want to eat right now and right to your door with DoorDash. Along with the restaurants you love, you can now get groceries and other essential items delivered. Get drinks, snacks, and other household items in under an hour. Are you craving late night ice cream? Forget that one key ingredient for dinner or maybe you just need a stock up for the week. With DoorDash, you can get everything in one easy app. And with over 300,000 partners, you can support your neighborhood go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurant chains. Ordering is easy and your items will be left safely outside your door when you choose contactless delivery drop-off. For a limited time, our listeners can get 25% off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code PRISM. That's 25% off, up to $10 in value and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the app store and enter code PRISM. 
And don't forget, that's code PRISM, 25% off your first order with DoorDash, subject to change and terms apply. The most important thing we can do to stop the lies about the lost cause, the heritage myth, is to educate people. I know it's not a particularly exciting answer, but I really think, at least in my opinion, that's where the answer lies. And this is particularly applicable to children that need to be educated about the real history behind the Confederacy and the things that inspired so they understand how important their beliefs and ideas are. The number one thing white nationalists don't want us to do is educate people. It's okay that the US has a checkered past. I don't think there's really a single country out there that hasn't done something wrong. But if we are afraid or unwilling to take a look at what has happened in our past so that we can learn from it, then we are doomed to repeat it. And take a look at one of the hottest topics going around the country right now, critical race theory. Critical race theory is a theory that racism is deeply embedded in the laws and practices our country rests upon. And you can see that from the other two episodes that that's not super far from the truth. Critical race theory is usually taught in law schools for junior or senior law students. However, kids in the public school system are beginning to be taught about the systemic racism within our country. Many teachers that consider themselves activists teach their students about the harms that racism has done in our past and how it continues to harm today. One source says, Fox News has mentioned critical race theory 1300 times in less than four months. Why? because critical race theory has become a new boogeyman for people unwilling to acknowledge our country's racist history and how it impacts the present. They go on to explain, scholars and activists who discuss CRT are not arguing that white people living now are to blame for what people did in the past. They are saying that white people living now have a moral responsibility to do something about how racism still impacts all of our lives today. Policies attempting to suffocate this much needed national conversation are an obstacle to the pursuit of an equitable democracy. And this is what I'm trying to say. We have to educate people so they understand what our past is made up of and how we can move forward. If people aren't educated, then they'll believe in things such as a lost cause myth because they don't know any better. Instead, we have to teach people the truth so that they can understand how to comprehend and make good change. Germany has actually done this in the wake of the Holocaust to be sure it's something that will never happen again. And the US can now learn a lot from the way that Germany teaches the Holocaust and how it's handled those symbols. As the New York Times explains, Niemann, who has lived in Germany for much of her adult life and who directs Berlin's Einstein Forum, contrasts Germany's response to the Holocaust with America's response to slavery and centuries of racial discrimination. Her concern is not comparative evil, which event is worse, but comparative redemption, how each community has responded to and reframed the memory of its unsavory past. Niemann contends that post-war Germany, after initially stumbling badly, has done the hard work necessary to grapple with and come to terms with the legacy of the Holocaust. They continue to say, in the late 1960s, West German children and grandchildren of Nazis began to struggle with their family's crimes. Having watched the televised Eichmann and Auschwitz trials and inspired by student protests sweeping Europe, young Germans demanded an honest account of past wrongs. That confrontation with history, while hardly complete and now under attack from right-wing forces, remains far more extensive and honest, Neiman says, than anything that occurred in the United States regarding slavery and discrimination. And so from where I sit, it's up to us to confront the past wrongs that the United States has done. And it's up to us to talk about it, to learn about it and to change things. And that starts with education, but it also starts with getting rid of monuments, street names and flags that glorify the institution of slavery. It's not heritage, it's hate. 
Rather than remember the people who were responsible for innumerable atrocities, we should take the time to remember heroes within the black community. We should erect monuments and name streets after people who were honorable people, people who were real heroes. Until today, I'd actually never heard of Robert Smalls, but Robert Smalls is someone we should remember. Here's a little bit about him. In May, 1862, an enslaved man named Robert Smalls won renown by stealing the planter, the Confederate military transport on which he served as a pilot. On a night when the ship's three white officers defied standing orders and left the vessel in care of its crew, all slaves, Small guided it out of its slip in Charleston Harbor and picked up his wife, their two young children, and other crewmates' families at a rendezvous on the Cooper River. Flying the South Carolina state flag and the stars and bars, he steered past several armed Confederate checkpoints and out onto the open sea, where he exchanged his two flags for a simple white one, a gesture to surrender to a Union ship on blockade duty. All in all, he delivered 16 enslaved persons to freedom. Robert Smalls is a hero. He should be remembered for his bravery and courage, but his heroism doesn't end there. After serving the Union cause as a pilot for the rest of the Civil War, he returned to South Carolina, opened a general store that catered to the needs of freedmen, bought his deceased master's mansion in Beaufort, and edited the Beaufort Southern Standard. He soon dived into politics as a loyal Republican, In 1868, he was a delegate to the South Carolina Convention charged with writing a new state constitution, which guaranteed freedmen the right to vote and their children the promise of free public education. Over the next three decades, Small served South Carolina in both houses of its legislature and in the U.S. House of Representatives. In 1895, he was once again a delegate to the state constitutional convention, except this time he was hoping to defend the freedmen's right to vote against efforts by white South Carolina Democrats to squash it. Although Smalls had learned to read only in adulthood, he was a feared debater, and at age 56, the Burley War hero remained an imposing figure. This man served his country. He freed enslaved people, helped freedmen, bought land, edited a newspaper, and then served in the government. We need to remember heroes like this, people who took steps in the right direction to make positive change. And on that note, that is where I'm going to end the final portion of this three-part series of taking a look at the Confederacy. I know this has been a very long and wild ride and the Confederacy was responsible for so many terrible things, but I'm happy that you were able to stick it out with me all the way to the end. I know it was a lot, but I think it was really important to talk about just this massive buildup of how this all even happened because I feel a lot of people just skip over it and just go, how did we get here? And I wondered that too, so I went and found out. But again, thank you all for making it to the end of today's episode and the end of this three-part series. I hope you learned something new. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, subscribing, sharing, all that good stuff so that you never miss a new episode. Thank you again, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.